Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Last week, we saw the craziness that was the beginning of the spring and autumn period, and we focused mainly on the five hegemons. But right around the time just after the five hegemons, a very important person is born. And honestly, very important probably is the understatement of the century. Because this person would live on long past their death, because their ideas and their worldview would not just survive, but help define China for the rest of its history. That person is, of course, Kongzi, or as we know him in English, Confucius. But to clarify, today is about the life of Confucius. Not about the philosophy or pseudo-religion of Confucianism. It is like looking at the life of Jesus Christ and just his literal life, not the ensuing religion built around him after his death. So, without further ado, our first episode in the double digits. Let's go. The history of China, episode ten: the life of Confucius. To understand Confucius, we need to understand and reiterate what we went over last episode. Confucius was born right after the Five Hegemon Era, so he himself never lived in a golden age of virtuousness, and instead only knew about the good old days of a competent, virtuous, and authoritative dynasty from stories and from old texts and what have you. Because now, as we saw last week. The Eastern Zhou essentially became a military arms race between the individual vassal states. The dynasty had no actual authority anymore, at least not one they could realistically enforce on their own. So they would just make the current strongest state the hegemon. But after five states all built up, armed up, and developed their own centralized government systems, it began to become clear the hegemon system was a short fix. Confucius was born in 551 BC in the city of Zhou, which is in, by the way, the Lu State. That, by the way, lies somewhere near Qufu. Shout out to episode one. The Zhou Dynasty and its kings allegedly controlled this region, but for all intents and purposes, it was the local Lu State lords that ran the show. And Confucius was born with the clan name of Kong. And the given name of Chou, thus his given literal name was Kong Chou. But it would be some time before he had himself the Octavian into Augustus moment, where Kong Chou turned into Kong Zi. So for now, he is Kong Chou. But I will say, for the rest of the episode, for the sake of my English-speaking listeners, we will simply refer to him as Confucius. Confucius was born into a pretty well-to-do family. He was born into the class known as Shir, spelled S-H-I. This was more or less the equestrian class equivalent in ancient China, as in it was in between the common folk, but it was also in between the full-blown aristocracy. It was somewhere in the middle, well-to-do, but not you know, aristocracy. His father, named Kong He, was an elderly man and a commandant in the local Lu State garrison. But Confucius's father, Kong He, was not descended from the Lu State. 
Instead, and this has been lightly alluded to many, many, many episodes ago, but his own ancestry traced back through the Dukes of the Song to the Shang Dynasty, which had, as we know, preceded the Zhou. We mentioned that tidbit that the Song state were the descendants of the long-gone Shang Dynasty. This familial connection to the Shang Dynasty cannot be understated. Confucius would be enamored and inspired by the Shang Dynasty, and yeah, the blood connection to it would simply amplify this tenfold. But that all would be put on the shelf for the time being, though, because at the age of just three, Confucius loses his father. And ancient China was an extremely patriarchal society, so the death of the father could often spell disaster for the family. And yeah, Confucius was raised by his mother, Yan Zhengzai, in abject poverty. Confucius may have been born into a pretty good situation, but yeah, that lasted all about three years, all of which, by the way, he probably doesn't remember ever happening because he was just a baby. So being raised in poverty by just his mother is a tough hand to be dealt. However, at just the age of 40, and probably more likely at a younger age than that, Confucius's mother, Yan Zhengzai, died herself. Yikes. Although there was a lot of hurt in his early life, Confucius still got educated. While not at an aristocratic school, in fact, this was actually a school for commoners, he was able to learn the six arts. What are the six arts? Well, during the Zhou dynasty, all students were required to master the Liu Yi, the six arts. Those six arts were rites, you know, the R-I-T-E kind of rites, music, archery, charioteering, calligraphy, and mathematics. And men who excelled in these six arts were thought to have reached the state of perfection, you know, a perfect gentleman. And while these may have been the staple of the educated of the Zhou dynasty, remember these six arts, because they would later become a staple of not the Zhou dynasty, but of Confucianism. So after a while getting educated, 19-year-old Confucius married Qi Guan, and a year later, the couple had their first child, Kong Li. And Confucius worked a litany of different jobs in his early 20s before his mother died. He worked various government jobs, he worked as a bookkeeper, and he worked as a caretaker of sheep and horses, but ended up using all the proceeds he made from all these jobs to give his mother a proper burial after she died when he was 23. And at the age of 23, it is said that he mourned for three years. Yeah, it seems like a lot, but note that this was the tradition. And even at a young age of 23, Confucius is acting upon old tradition. And as we know from the last two episodes, these Zhou vassal states, like the Chu state or the Jin state, and in this case, the Lu state, were headed by a ruling ducal house, i.e. the duke was essentially the king of the state. And in the Lu state, at least, there were three aristocratic families under the duke whose heads bore the title of viscount and held hereditary positions in the Lu bureaucracy. During Confucius' time, the Ji family, spelled J-I, held the position of minister over the masses, who also was essentially, you know, the prime minister. 
And then it was the Meng family, M-E-N-G, that held the position of Minister of Works. And lastly, of the three families, the Shu family held the position for Minister of War. But in the winter of 505 BC, issues began to arise within the nobility of the Lu government. Because Yang Hu, a retainer of the Ji family, decided it was time to seize some power for himself. Because why not? So this guy, Yang Hu, rose up in rebellion and seized power from the Ji family. But this brash move for power wasn't thought out well and wasn't meant to be. Because by the summer of 501 BC, the three hereditary families had succeeded in just expelling the guy from the Lu state entirely. More like a speed bump than a full-out revolution. But you might be thinking, and yeah, I am too, so what? Who cares about some inner power struggles of the Lu state nobility? But here is why. Because by the time the three noble families of the Lu state gave Yang Hu the boot, Confucius had already built up a considerable reputation through his teachings, which yes, we will examine later on today. And the royal families came to see the value of having someone who worked with proper conduct and worked with extreme righteousness in mind, and furthermore saw how they could use someone like that, i.e. like Confucius, so they themselves could achieve loyalty to a legitimate government. So what the Yang Hu problem dealt with and him expelled, and the realization that having someone like Confucius around couldn't hurt, that very year, 501 BC, Confucius was appointed to the minor position of governor of a town. But this would just be a stepping stone, as he would soon rise to the position of minister of crime. But Confucius, as you probably could assume, was not a mindless worker drone. Obviously not. He had his own convictions, and he began to act upon them. He was a believer in the mandate of heaven, and with that belief, wanted to see the authority of the Lu state centralized back into the duke's control. Essentially, back into the control of a king. He saw the best way to start about doing this as to, well, dismantle the royal family's fortifications around their respective cities. Essentially, he wanted to rip apart the military protection and the literal stonewalled protection the royal families used. Because with these protections, the royal families could push their own agendas and then hide behind their walls. But how is the minister of crime going to pull that one off? That seems like a little more than he can bite off. Remember though, when I described his life, I never once mentioned anything military-based for Confucius. Albeit, if you were a good listener, yeah, I guess his father held a spot in the military. But nothing of that sort was in Confucius's life. So he had to bank on not military, but diplomacy. And literally just one year after Confucius was made governor of a town, another thing broke his way. Because in 500 BC, Ho Fan, who was the small-time local governor like Confucius, revolted against his lord family. And that lord family were the Shu, who, as we know, held the position for the minister of war. Now, he seized his own city of Ho, and his own lord family, who, yes, were the Shu, as well as the Meng family, who, by the way, held the minister for works chair, both tried to besiege this rebellious governor. But they couldn't oust him, because he had such good fortifications. These royal families couldn't get their governor back in line, 
So what the heck can they do now? Lucky for them, they didn't have to do anything. Wait, so Governor Ho Fan just decided, even though I'm well protected, I'm quitting? No, that's not what happened. Instead, officials and townsfolk of the city of Ho that were loyal to the Lord family took their own action and forced Ho Fan, the governor, to get out of Dodge and run to the Chi State because he was safe within the walls from the Shu family, but within the walls, he was not safe from his own people. So again, though, how does this have anything to do with Confucius? Well, it relates to Confucius because Ho Fan's action led the royal families to begin to heed Confucius and his disciples' calls for dismantled fortifications. Essentially saying, look, we've been telling you to get rid of these walls. Let's do this thing already and get rid of them. So eventually, a year and a half after this incident, in 498, the city walls within the Lu state began to fall began to fall because they never totally fell. Because soon thereafter, Gongshan Fu Rao, a retainer in the Ji family, decided that it was his own time to revolt. Because guess what? Every retainer of every family wants to revolt, it seems. And revolt he did, as he soon took control of the armed forces at the city of Bi, Bi, one of the large noble cities about to tear their walls down. And he up and decided to immediately launch an attack against the capital Lu. But what is interesting to note here is that earlier, Gongshan had actually approached Confucius himself to join him. But like, how would that ever go over well with Confucius? What was Gongshan's game plan here? And of course, Confucius turns him down, but it's not for the reasons you might think. Because the fact is, Confucius was way more sympathetic to this cause than many would have assumed. Because many historians have ascertained that unlike the rebel Yang Hu before him, you know, the one who was so bad the families turned to Confucius to give him a role in the government, yeah, well, unlike Yang Hu, this Gongshan character may have sought to actually destroy the three hereditary families and restore the power of the duke, which, yeah, is something we all know Confucius wanted dearly. Still, Confucius was not on board with all of this because he disapproved of the use of a violent revolution by principle. Even though, yes, the Ji family had dominated the whole state by force for generations and had even exiled the previous duke, but Confucius doesn't play like that. He believes in acting on his own moral virtue, not on the virtue of others. During the revolt by Gongshan, Zhong Yo had managed to keep the duke and his three viscounts together at the court. Now, Zhong Yo was one of those disciples of Confucius, and Confucius himself had arranged for this guy to be given the position of governor by the Ji family. When Confucius heard of the raid, he requested that Ji Huan, the Viscount, allow the Duke and his court to retreat to a stronghold on his palace grounds. Thereafter, the heads of the three families and the Duke retreated to the Ji's palace complex and ascended to a protective terrace. Confucius ordered that two officers lead an assault against the rebels, rebels by the way, that had once asked Confucius for help. At least one of the two officers was a retainer of the Ji family, but they were unable to refuse orders while in the presence of the Duke, the Viscounts, and the court. The rebels were soon pursued and defeated at a battle known as the Battle of Gu. Now, immediately after Gongshan was defeated, the Ji family 
raised the Bee City walls to the ground. Remember, B-I-B was the same city that Gongshan had seized forces from. So Confucius wanted the walls to come down, but the way in which they were coming down was not really how he planned it. The attackers retreated after realizing they could not have become rebels against the state and their lord. Through Confucius's actions, the city of B officials had inadvertently revolted against their own lord, thus forcing Viscount Ji Huan's hand and having them dismantle the walls of the city. As, yeah, you can't have these walls because you're harboring a bunch of rebels, or you need to confess to instigating the event by going against proper conduct and the righteousness as an official. When it was time to dismantle the walls of the Hmong family, though, the governor of that town was more reluctant to have his own walls torn down and convinced the head of the Hmong family not to do so. So, so far, one got torn down because they revolted, and the other one is refusing to do so. The Zhoujuan recalls that the governor advised against raising the walls to the ground as he said it made the Cheng vulnerable to the Qi state and could cause the destruction of the whole family. And even though Viscount Meng Yi gave his word not to interfere with an attempt to do so, he went back on his earlier promise to dismantle the walls. So, later in 498 BC, Duke Ding of the Lu State personally went out with an army to lay siege to his own city, the city of Cheng, in an attempt to raise its walls to the ground. But he did not succeed. So, with three cities the city of B having their walls torn down essentially because they revolted, the city of Meng just up and saying, we're not going to do it. The fact is that, well, even the Lu king couldn't bring them down. Thus, Confucius could not achieve the idealistic reforms that he wanted, including restoration of the legitimate rule of the duke. And in doing so, unfortunately, he had made powerful enemies within the state, especially with Viscount Ji Huan due to his success so far. And according to the Shiji and Zhou Zhuan, Confucius decided to depart from his homeland in 497 BC after his support for the failed attempt of dismantling the fortified city walls of the powerful Ji, Meng, and Shu families had failed. He left the Lu state without resigning and remained in self-exile, unable to return as long as Viscount Ji Huan was alive. Now, this is the interesting part of the story, because why does he go out? He should still stay and protect the duke, right? Well, the Shiji, one of the historical documents of the day, stated that the neighboring Qi state was worried that the Lu state were becoming too powerful, and were becoming too powerful because Confucius was involved in the government of the Lu state. According to this account, the Qi state decided to sabotage the Lu state and, yeah, really Confucius's reforms, by sending a hundred good horses and eighty beautiful dancing girls to the Duke of Lu. The Duke indulged himself in pleasure and did not attend to official duties for three whole days. So what does this lead Confucius to do? Because all he's ever wanted was the Duke to reign supreme. Yet the Duke he wants to reign supreme goes and does this and lets Confucius down? What is Confucius to do? And yeah, of course, Confucius was disappointed and resolved to leave the Lu state and seek better opportunities elsewhere. But to leave at once would expose the misbehavior of the duke he still loves, and therefore bring public humiliation to the ruler that Confucius himself was serving, therefore bringing humiliation onto Confucius. Yeah, 
quite the bind. Confucius therefore waited for the duke to make a lesser mistake, you know, make a different one and blame that as the reason for leaving. Soon after, the duke neglected to send Confucius a portion of the sacrificial meat that was, you know, due to him according to custom. And with Confucius not getting the sacrificial meat, he seized upon this as his pretext to leave both his post and the Lu state as a whole. After Confucius's resignation, he began a long journey, or maybe a set of journeys, who really knows, around the principality states of northeast and central China, including the Wei state, the Song state, the Zheng state, the Cao state, the Chu state, the Qi state, the Chen state, and the Cai state, and he tried to go to the Jin state, which as we know was a big player, but wasn't allowed in. At the courts of all of these states, he would plead and expound his political beliefs, but none of them were ever implemented. He tried tirelessly to find a virtuous ruler, you know, a duke he could really hold up. And as a potentially bad omen for the future of China, he never found one. According to the Zhou Zhuan, Confucius returned to his native state of Lu when he was 68 years old, after he was invited by the chief minister of the state. Now, the Analects depict him spending his last five years teaching 72 or maybe 77 disciples and transforming the old wisdom via a set of texts called the Five Classics. But what did he teach and what did he really believe, though? Because in the story of his life, we have sort of neglected what he really believes. Yes, we know he wants the Duke to reign supreme. Yes, we know he wants a more virtuous leader. But there is obviously so much more to his thought. Politically, Confucius' political thought is based upon his ethical thought. Essentially, that morality ran his political understanding. He explained this in one of the most important analects. He said, quote, If the people be led by laws, and uniformity sought to be given them by punishments, then they will just try to avoid the punishment, but have no sense of shame. If they be led by virtue and uniformity sought to be given them by the rules of propriety, they will have a sense of shame, and moreover, will become good." End quote. I know, quite the mouthful, but it was the idea that are you doing good to get a good result for yourself? Or are you doing good because it is the right thing to do? Essentially saying, are you not breaking the law because you're afraid to be punished? Which means, yeah, you really have no shame in breaking the law. Or are you not breaking these laws because they're virtuous and you believe it's the right thing to do? Furthermore, on the political side of things, Confucius looked nostalgically upon earlier days and urged the Chinese people, particularly those with political power, to model themselves on earlier examples. And if you really did listen hard, yes, earlier examples, like the five emperors, more specifically, Yao and Xuan. And in times of division, chaos, and endless wars between these states, he wanted to restore the mandate of heaven. And he believed that the mandate of heaven could unify the world and bestow peace and prosperity on the people because the Zhou dynasty at this point was weak. The mandate of heaven was nothing. Every time a hegemon fell, a new one would pop up by conquering and murdering around them. That's no peace. Where's the mandate of heaven? And because of Confucius's vision of personal and social perfections was framed on the revival of the ordered society of earlier times, Confucius is often considered a great proponent of conservatism.
But interestingly, and maybe not so conservative, he believed that rulers should succeed to power on the basis of their moral merits, instead of their lineage. These would be rulers devoted to their people, striving for personal and social perfection, and such a ruler would spread his own virtues to the people instead of just imposing proper behavior with laws and rules, essentially saying they would lead by example. And to our modern and Western understandings, Confucius did not believe in the concept of democracy, which, yeah, I know, it was not a term or system the Chinese had or knew about. Instead, it was more that he was against the idea that anybody is capable of self-government. He expressed fears that the masses lacked the intellect to make decisions for themselves, and that, in his view, since not everybody is created equal, therefore not everyone has the same right of self-government. But interestingly, he also argued for representing truth in language, and honesty to him was of paramount importance. Because in Confucius's eyes, even in facial expression, truth must always be represented. Confucius believed that if a ruler is to lead correctly, by action, that orders would be unnecessary and that others will just follow the proper and virtuous actions of the ruler. And in discussing the relationship between a king and his subject, or a father and his son, etc., he underlined the need to give due respect to superiors. And that, that right there, is one of the most fundamental ideas of Confucius's that would translate into serious cultural norms even existing in the present day. And that, more simply put, is the idea of filial piety. Essentially, filial piety is the idea of respecting one's elders, or bosses, or commanders, or king, etc. Look at it this way. Culturally, in the United States, most times, we don't really care too much for our elders. We view them more as senile or cute, and call them, you know, four times a year, while stereotypically, when one thinks of East Asia, elders are much more revered. They're viewed as wise, not cute and funny, and kids take care of their parents in their later years. But why? Because East Asia, through Confucianism and other religious, and more, you know, maybe not religious, more philosophical ideas, believed in filial piety. Furthermore, off his politics and onto his ethics, his moral teachings emphasized self-cultivation, emulation of moral exemplars, and the attainment of skilled judgment rather than knowledge of rules, essentially saying you should know to make the right decision because it's the right thing to do, not just remember the laws and say, oh, well, I'm not allowed to do this and I can't do that. No, no. Be a good person. A story about Confucius is that when a stable burned down, he is said to have asked immediately if anyone was hurt, and not about the horses, implying that a sage views people above property in all cases. But while he may have been wise, he was never a self-proclaimed or proclaimed at all god or deity, because Confucius served not as an all-powerful deity or a universally true set of abstract principles, because Confucius never served as an all-powerful deity but rather as the ultimate model for others. So when Confucianism did eventually get off the ground, it wasn't and still debatably isn't a religion. Instead, it toes this gray area from religious devotion, yet with no supernatural deity, thus rendering it more of a philosophical way to live. Now, the Confucius theory of ethics, as exemplified in Li, 
is based on three important conceptual aspects of life. There are one, the ceremonies associated with sacrifices to ancestors and deities of various types. Then there's the social and political institutions. And lastly, there's the etiquette of daily behavior. And this was all sort of highlighted in his five classics, which were the Book of Odes, the Book of Documents, the Book of Changes, the Book of Rites, and the Spring and Autumn Annals. But he didn't handwrite those. No, he didn't start from scratch, because as I mentioned earlier, he took existing texts, like, yeah, the Spring and Autumn Annals, which we discussed last week, and knew that they were started by the loose date well before Confucius was born. So he would take these books of days of old, which as we know he was enamored with, and he would annotate these texts and highlight the best parts he saw in them and then would elaborate upon them. He was, after all, a conservative and a fan of the good old days of before. He believed in the metaphysical and yin and yang, and this was seen in the Book of Changes. He saw the beauty and power of song and poetry as seen in the Book of Odes. He believed in the power of history and that of competent and cohesive rulers as seen in the Book of Documents. And yes, of course, King Yao and King Shen, the last of the five emperors from episode one, were talked about extensively by Confucius. The Book of Rites described the social norms, government organization, and the ritual conduct during the Zhou dynasty. And believed to have been compiled by Kongzi, the Book of Rites is the foundation for many ritual principles that arise in later imperial China. And lastly, did you wonder why the Lu State's Spring and Autumn Annals made it through history? Was it chance? Was it luck? Well, yeah, if you did figure it out yet, it's because Confucius and his followers just kept reprinting and annotating it over and over again, allowing it to survive today. Instead of one or two state copies of the two states annals or of the Qi states annals, the Lu states spring and autumn annals were replicated over and over and over again, giving it the chance to survive to today. In the end, Confucius had begun teaching when he turned about 30. And in his lifetime, he is believed to have taught more than 3,000 students. And of those 3,000, about 70 of whom were considered outstanding. But it is the five classics that would spurn Confucianism on. But the five classics and many of his other teachings were not organized when he died. Which, yes, in 479 BC, Confucius died in the state of Lu. So where does that leave Confucianism? If he's dead and none of these things will organize, what's going to happen? Well, that would really be kickstarted and made more of an actual thing by two of his followers much after his death. And in due time, we will get to know them too. But understanding his life and the events that happened before is really important for now. But these immediate followers compiled all of his teachings into something called the Analects, which we will get into in due time when it appears on the historical stage. Essentially, the Analects are a compilation of all of Confucius's teachings. He didn't write it, he didn't put it together. Very similar to the New Testament, it was put together after the fact. And that is where I will leave it for today. I know I've been talking about Confucius for a while and this episode will be quite long. But I hope you enjoyed listening to it because Confucius gives us a look into the metaphysical, the historical, and the core beliefs of people at the time. And well, maybe not the time, but soon to be in the future. So thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week on the History of China. <laughs>